Let's pray. Father, your generosity is unmatched. You've given us your spirit as a pledge, a promise that you will never leave us or forsake us. Your spirit is our comforter, and he binds us together as a sign of your kingdom that is filling the whole world. You've given us your word, and it is living and active in our lives. Through it, you rule your people. It is a deep well of wisdom, divine wisdom that never fails us. And beyond this, you have given us peace with you. When we were enemies of you, when we sought wisdom outside of you, when we aligned ourselves with the world, you've made peace with us. Through your son's death and resurrection, we've been forgiven all of our trespasses. And the forgiveness overwhelms the record against us. We praise you and thank you for your generosity. Today, we need your protection. In many ways, the world around us is pressing us into its mold. It tries to remake us into its image. It promises pleasures that are temporary and wealth that will fade. The world offers us a friendship of pride and permissiveness. It offers us popularity in its kingdom. But it lacks your spirit of truth that warns us to turn from destructive ways. Your word tells us that this world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Lord, deliver us from temptation to be friends with the world. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness for the ways we've partnered with the world as it set itself up against you. In one way or another, we've not humbled ourselves before you. So through your spirit and through the covenant relationships we have here, open our eyes to our pride so we can be saved from it. Help us to accept humiliation so we can be saved from destruction. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Ryan. You can have a seat and open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5. In 1971, in the country we now know as Iran, a party was held that was intended to be the party to end all parties. The leader of the country at the time was a man named Mohammad Reza Shah Pahlavi. And Shah is the Persian word for king. He was the king of the country. There's he and his wife, the queen. In his time as king, he had taken Iran, previously known as Persia, from a backwards third world country to a developed nation with large construction projects, a growing and formidable military, as well as enormous wealth due to their oil reserves. Now, unfortunately, at the same time that he was known for these positive accomplishments, he was also known for a growing reputation of opulence, hedonism, and overspending, all while many of his fellow countrymen and women were dealing with poverty and famine. The more militant Islamic followers in the country saw him as only caring about his own ego and wanting all too much to be a puppet of Western interests. Well, as his accomplishments grew, it was suggested to the Shah that he had the leadership qualities of the great King Cyrus of Persia, almost as if he was a reincarnation. And we're going to become more familiar with this Cyrus and, and Darius of Persia as we go on in Daniel. But this recurring compliment, in addition to the Shah's relationship with Western powers, created the seed of an idea that the Shah should celebrate the rebuilding and the strength of the Persian Empire 
And for uh, that ancient empire was the power that had conquered the great Babylonian empire and the memory of the great King Nebuchadnezzar we've been reading about in Daniel. So in 1971, plans were made to celebrate the 2,500-year anniversary. That's a pretty big anniversary, right? 2,500-year anniversary of the Persian monarchy. It was to be celebrated in the desert at the ruins of a city called Persepolis. This was the throne room of Cyrus the Great. And there in Persepolis is also the tomb of that man, Cyrus the Great. It was there that the Shah spent upwards of, and remember this is 1971, $2 billion on a three-day party. And it would be the host of the world's leaders, the who's who of dictators and presidents and kings. The press at the time labeled it billion-dollar camping, the party of the century and the mother of all parties. It required an airfield to be built from nothing right next to the ruins, tents to be erected and air-conditioned. Guys, this is 1971, okay? Air-conditioned. 150 tons of kitchen equipment was flown in from Paris. The table for the guest of honor was 20 meters long. You can see it here. And it took 125 women six months to embroider the tablecloth. The menu included quail eggs stuffed with caviar, crayfish mousse, roast lamb with truffles, roast peacock stuffed with foie gras, which doesn't sound appealing to me, And 25,000 bottles of 60-year-old wine was flown in. 25,000 bottles. Now, meanwhile, in the province surrounding the tent city, while this giant party was going on, there's the parade that they had. In the province surrounding the tent city, one of the worst famines in Iranian history was taking place. This was so ridiculous to the people of Iran, the common people, that the Iranian Muslim clerics encouraged the public to protest against it. Now, if you know your history, eight years later, in 1979, those same Iranian clerics were leading the people in a revolt that caused the Shah to go into exile, and historians at the time wondered aloud if the seed of his undoing was not actually sown during the three-day party to end all parties. Now, it's been quoted that those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it, and how ironic is it that the story we're going to be looking at today in Daniel 5 is the story of not a Persian party, but a Babylonian party, to end all parties, that ultimately led to its demise as an empire at the hands of the very same Persian empire that would be celebrated in 1971. I find that very ironic. Unfortunately, it seems that the Shah of Iran did not learn the most basic lessons that this story and the story of his predecessors teaches us. Unrepentant pride blinds on its way to destruction. Unrepentant pride blinds on its way to destruction. Most likely the Shah, like King Belshazzar in our story today, did not pay attention to the stories of their predecessors and suffered the fate of repeating their same foolishness in unrepentant pride. Now my hope for us as a church today and for those of us that are watching online is that we can have ears to hear and humble ourselves to the wisdom this story brings us that it might not just be a history lesson, but a history lesson that actually impacts us by the Spirit of God so that we humble ourselves from our pride, that we might open our eyes to our own pride and instead see explicitly our need for a Savior to save us and keep us from both immediate and ultimate destruction. 
And so this morning, we will be looking at this truth that unrepentant, bri- unrepentant pride blinds on its way to destruction. Now, our path towards chapter 7 of Daniel, the hinge point of Daniel, the climax of Daniel, where we will see the Messiah enthroned and given authority over the cosmos, as we're going towards it, we've been walking along this path in which we're surrounded by these repetitive themes of the sovereignty of God, idolatry of man, arrogance of man, and the need for humility. And you might actually say, Hans, we're going to spend yet a third week on the topic of pride and humility? Really? But one of the keys to studying the Bible well is to recognize the importance of repetition, that repetition always points us to something important. And in Daniel chapter 5, the author brings these repeated themes to a head in a way that forces us to come to grips with them and recognize them. So let's begin by taking a look at the setup of the story where we're going to see a similar party to end all parties, and it's within this party we're going to see the truth that pride intoxicates us and blinds us to our own foolishness. Pride intoxicates us and blinds us to our own foolishness. Let's look there at Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, and that name there, father, means predecessor, that, it be, that they had been taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, that they be brought, and that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared, and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple, have a chain of gold around his neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. Now, a lot has transpired in the kingdom of Babylon, and the life of our main character, Daniel, has continued on, but The last time we looked at the story in Daniel chapter 4 was most likely anywhere from 23 to 30 years earlier than chapter 5. Now, just a quick side note here, I have had many conversations with people over the years where they might say, man, I just want a life like Daniel where I'm just connecting with the Lord and and I get these visions from him. I want to hear from God. Friends, Daniel did have those moments in his life, but there were also moments where he just existed in faithfulness in the miraculously mundane of every life, everyday life. 23 years, he was just simply faithful, no visions, no big uh, uh, vision from God, and yet he just stayed faithful. We have to remember when we're reading these books of the Bible that these men and women were like us, and yes, they did have moments of intense connection to the Lord, but they, like us, were asked to exist in faithfulness in the miraculously mundane of everyday life. Well, in that time, 
since it's all past, since Nebuchadnezzar's death, and here most likely what's going on is Daniel is extremely old and he's possibly even retired from public service. Now, for many years, this story right here that we've read through the beginning of was thought of, a, of as a mythical story because Belshazzar was not listed in the official list of Babylonian kings. But the most recent archaeology put to rest the debate and, in fact, speaks to the truth that he is actually quite an evil character and gives us some backing as to why we believe that Daniel is actually very truthful historically. King Nebuchadnezzar, who we've seen thus far in Daniel, was the ultimate king of Babylon, and he reigned for 43 years. But then over the next seven years, there were three kings, two of which were executed. There was a bunch of coups and people trying to take over power. Then at the end of that seven years, a king named Nabonidus, who was Belshazzar's father, took the throne. And Belshazzar's father, Nabonidus, was the one who actually had power over the entire kingdom. It was Belshazzar who organized and executed uh, the killing and murder of his father's predecessor so that his father could take over. All the while, Belshazzar wanted his father to die so he could take over. Unfortunately, Nabonidus was a devotee of a pagan god that was not the main god of Babylon. The main god of Babylon was a god named Marduk. But Nabonidus, he was a devotee of the pagan moon god known as Sin, very similar to our word Sin. And so the nobility of Babylon, the people in charge, were upset with this. They wanted him to worship Marduk, and so they actually forced him out of the city into exile. And so while he was still the first in command, still the king, he didn't reside in Babylon. And this left Belshazzar, his son, in charge of Babylon as the co-regent, the second in command. So he and his father were, in essence, first and second kings of Babylon. This is why he offers third in command to Daniel. Now, all of this not only gives credence to Daniel as an accurate historical document, but it gives us visibility into the heart of this arrogant and prideful murderer and conspirator named Belshazzar. But then the author goes even further in the text we have in front of us to give us an understanding of just how wicked this king is. At this point in the history of Babylon, their armies had just suffered a huge defeat at the hand of the Medes and the Persians. And their armies, the Medes and the Persians, were amassed right outside the city walls of Babylon. While they are partying, there's the uh, equivalent of the United States, all armed forces, sitting right outside their wall. It was the most powerful army in the world at the time. And they're partying. Belshazzar, in his arrogance, saw no problem with this, as the city had been designed to withstand siege for multiple years. They had supply of multiple years of food within the city walls, and the Euphrates River ran underneath the walls through the city, and that was their water supply. And so they thought to themselves, we're fine. They're never going to get in. And so he joined Belshazzar here, most likely attempting to rally his lords to have courage to continue fighting, but also possibly celebrating a pagan festival to Marduk. This is why some historians say the Medes and the Persians chose this very night to invade the city is because everybody would be involved in the festival. In all of it, Belshazzar is displaying his arrogance and pride that he and his lords could party down, refusing to admit that they could be vanquished and conquered. The wording here indicates that it was a feast to end all feasts, and the verbs for drinking wine indicate a continuous drinking to the point where they are all most likely very inebriated. 
In addition to that, there is an odd mix of people. He has all of his lords, but then also all of his, all of his wives and all of his concubines attending as well. We can compare this to the book of Esther and the feast at the beginning of that book and other extra-biblical sources that suggest that when this started to happen, when the wives would come in and the concubines, there was an intention, and that intention was complete and utter debauchery. To top it all off, the debauchery has most likely morphed by this point into orgiastic worship of the pagan gods as they are wanting to pour out drink offerings to these false gods that are imaged in idols of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And so to do so, Belshazzar makes the blasphemous call to bring in the golden vessels that had been taken from the temple in Jerusalem when the Israelites were overthrown. Now, it was very normal for conquering kings to take the bounty that they had stolen in conquest from a rival god's temple and store it in their own temple treasury as a sign of victory of their god over the other conquered foe's god. You can think back to the story of the Philistines stealing the Ark of the Covenant and placing it in their temple to Dagon, their half-fish, half-man god. And then Dagon eventually fell over. But there was an unspoken rule in the ancient world that you would not desecrate these items out of the possibility that these gods were actually very powerful and they would bring vengeance against you in the future. But Belshazzar is so lifted up in his own pride and arrogance that he just doesn't care. He makes it a purposeful desecration to show himself above the god Yahweh. In essence, he was saying to God, yeah, I know that you humbled Nebuchadnezzar, the king of kings of Babylon, but it's me we're talking about here. I'm a greater king. He's practically shaking his fist at Yahweh, daring God to humble him. The inclusion of the imagery of alcohol and sexuality here is purposeful. It's not a commentary on their innate moral value as much as a commentary on the perverse use of them in blasphemous, prideful usurpation of God's authority to proclaim what is good and what is evil. Mankind can easily become inebriated and intoxicated with both alcohol and sex when it's not utilized within the proper stewardship and submission to God's command. And so here they act as imagery to show that Belshazzar is actually not just inebriated with alcohol and sexuality. He's drunk with his own power, arrogance, and pride. This arrogant pride will be exampled throughout the rest of the story, but here, even with a powerful army knocking on their front door, Belshazzar does not see a need to be protected. Pride has blinded him so that he believes the lie that he is invincible and, in a sense, God himself lifted up. It's in this context and with that attitude hanging in the air, mingling with the disgusting nature of pagan worship and sin, and debauchery, that God decides he's had enough and makes himself and his authority known in the realm of man. How does he do this? The fingers of a human hand appear and write on a wall so all can see. Now, archaeology has found this very throne room and found that these walls were covered in white gypsum, much like when you go into new construction and they haven't painted yet on drywall. That's what it looked like is that level of white. And then it was right across from a lampstand, the main source of light in the room. And so you can imagine, it's almost as if God has put a searchlight right on the writing. Pay attention. Now, what's interesting also about this is in those days when a battle occurred, 
To take account of casualties, what you do is you'd take a, the single right hand of every soldier that died and you'd cut it off, put it in a bag, and take it back as a way to count how many people were killed. But here, rather than a lifeless hand of a vanquished foe, a hand full of life appears from a very powerful God to declare the truth. The words written consist of normal Aramaic letters or characters, which we'll look at in a bit, but no one in the room is able to interpret what the combination of them mean. Writing in those days was uniform, without spaces or punctuation, it all just kind of put together in one big glob, and vowels were not written, but rather inferred. So imagine if you were reading something in the English and you had just a bunch of consonants stuck together. And so nobody really knew what it was. So whether they're not able to determine where the breaks occur or whether they know the words but do not know their meaning, either way, the wise men are unable to interpret. Belshazzar is so affected that at the bare minimum, his legs give way and he collapses. But other linguists look at the phrase there that talks about his knees knocking together and his limbs give way. In the old King James, it's that his joints of his loins become unloosed. And they look at this and many linguists say either he gave way and fell down, or perhaps it meant he soiled himself. Whatever it is, Belshazzar knows this is not good for him or his kingdom, and so he promises authority and power to anyone that can interpret the meaning. Now, guys, pride in the biblical context can simply be defined as when we make ourselves out to be the one that sits in the place of God. Pride is when we choose to be the final authority of what is truth, rather than submitting to God as the rightful authority. Now, most often, what I run into, even in myself, is the fact that we probably would look at ourselves and go, well, I don't think I'm God. But friends, the second you put yourself in authority above God's word, you have placed yourself in the position of God. The second you look at what God's word says and say, you know, I know it says that, but you've put yourself in a position of God. Pride has taken over. Pride intoxicates us and makes us believe the lie of our own authority, which in turn makes us forget God and his work and commands. In Isaiah 5, when God is chastising his people, he uses this same connection of drunkenness, intoxication, with the idea of believing our own lies and believing that we're God. This is Isaiah 5, 11 through 12. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feast. Now pause for a second. This is interesting because the Bible elsewhere talks about how music is wonderful. Music is used to serve the Lord. Wine is given to us for our joy, the Bible says. But it's when we decide that we are God and we take those things that God meant for good and we turn them to perverse, twisted, evil ways that we have put ourselves in the authority position. And so it then says, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the works of his hands. In fact, we disregard God. This is Isaiah 5, 20 through 21. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Israel had forgotten the one who saved them and gave them identity and had once again fallen into the trap of our first parents to believe that we can be gods in our own eyes, rising above the one who is truly God, King, Lord, and Judge. 
And this was Belshazzar's error. But friends, this is also our error. God's word begs us to learn this lesson. Pride intoxicates us and blinds us to our own foolishness. And this is why when pride is in our hearts, we believe lies that we know to be false when we see them in other people. Here are some things I know that have crossed my mind in my sinful life. See if they resonate with you. I know better than those around me. How about this one? I alone can manage this sin or sinful attitude more than those who have wrestled with it before me. How about this one? In others, this attitude is sin, but not in my situation. And lastly, I am justified in this sin or attitude that I know is against God's word. How many of you are familiar with what's going on with the Ravi Zacharias Ministries? Pretty sad situation. If you haven't read about it, you can go on the Gospel Coalition or just type it into Google. You'll find that Ravi Zacharias, a man who's been revered by many, many have come to know Jesus because of his ministry, he died recently. And after he died, it came out that he has been a massive abuser of women. Uh, he's, I, I don't even want to go into the detail of it because it's so disgusting. But one of the things that he said to some of the women that he abused while he was in the process of sexually abusing them was... I deserve this because of all the work I do for God's kingdom. A few years ago, a good friend of mine and mentor, one of the men I revered very highly, ended up falling in adultery. And this was a big, big uh, uh, break in Reformed theology and in the Reformed church. Uh, He was known as a man who absolutely exemplified good preaching, and, and we all wanted to be like him. And he fell in adultery. And I remember talking to brothers and sisters at the time. And the big question all of us had is, how could this man of God, who's so smart, so wise, knew the scriptures and had seen so many people fall before, how could he think that he wouldn't fall as well? What's the answer? Pride. I alone can manage this sin that has overtaken so many before me. Pride intoxicates us. When we're in pride, we so lift ourselves up as judge that we believe these very lies. Pride causes us to justify ourselves and condemn those around us that are trying to point us to Christ and bring us to humble conviction. Pride intoxicates us and blinds us to our own foolishness. But even with that, here in our story this morning, even in this arrogance and pride, God is merciful to call in his faithful servant Daniel to give truth to Belshazzar. And the truth that he gives him is a reminder of what occurred in chapter 4. God's humbling is a benevolent grace meant to encourage repentance. God's humbling is a benevolent grace meant to encourage repentance. Let's read there in Daniel 5 verse 10. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar 
your father, your predecessor, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Notice the similarity in name there, Belteshazzar and Belshazzar. That's why he's referred to as Daniel throughout the rest of the story. She says, now let Daniel be called and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king and the king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. In our current day nomenclature, he's saying, you can take your gifts and you can put them where the sun don't shine. That's basically what he's saying. Hans's summary. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness, glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. Now pause for a second. Guys, how humble are donkeys? How prideful are donkeys? A lot. That's why another name for a donkey that we use is usually used for people who are prideful and hardened in heart that are being jerks, right? So he was made to be like what he was, a wild donkey. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you've praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. A woman here called the queen comes on the scene, but just as Nebuchadnezzar is referred to as father, meaning predecessor, this queen could really be any number of women. It could be uh, the queen mother, uh, it could be Belshazzar's mother, the wife of Nabonidus. It could also be Nebuchadnezzar's wife that was supposedly still alive at this time, according to some of the history, and was known for her wisdom. But regardless, she knew her history and recognized the similarity in the current situation to the stories of Daniel's greatness. Now, what I want us to notice is the difference in the interaction between Belshazzar and Daniel when compared to Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. Rather than show respectful, uh, respectful air toward Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar did, Belshazzar immediately reminds Daniel that he is an exile of Judah, a conquered people. In his speech, he seems to be letting Daniel know that he has heard of him, but that he's not really impressed by him, maintaining an air of overarching authority. 
Now, Daniel begins by reminding the king and us of the story of Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation, which we went into in depth the last two weeks. The main thrust of his message is contained in a couple of points made in verses 18, 20, and 22. 18, 20, and 22. The first there, in 18, he says, The Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. Now, the underlying principle here is that any good gift, greatness, or position that we have is from God. And it doesn't mean that we have to be kings. It's anything. It's our breath. It's our friends. It's our family. It's our spouses, our children, our jobs. It's having health. It's being able to stand up in the morning. It's being able to sleep at night. It's this church. It's being part of a body of Christ. That is a gift from God. In Nebuchadnezzar's position, his very authority, kingship, and ability to rule was given by God. We may not be kings over a kingdom the size of Babylon, but the word is clear that any good thing we have is from God. It's his grace. In John 3.27, John the Baptist says this, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. James 1.17 says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now, friends, I have been very blessed in my life. I've had the opportunity to be successful in a lot of realms. And I don't say that in pride. I say that in amazement because it is all God. Take, for example, the scholarship I got to play basketball in Division I basketball. If you go back and look at the film, I did not deserve it. And who made me six foot 10 and 300 pounds? God did. I didn't wake up one morning and go, ah, there we go. There's another 10 inches. I know some of you that are vertically challenged wish you could do that but we can't. God gave me this body, right? At the same time, this church, right? I didn't one day go, oh, I think just by my attractiveness, I'm going to pull a bunch of people. We all know that's not true. How did this church form? By the work of God. Why are you all here? By the work of God. Why have we not folded in the last year? By the work of God. Why have we not all died this year? By the work of God, every good gift is from God. So then, when we lift ourselves up, as he says that Nebuchadnezzar did, it's to ignore the fact that every good gift comes from God. It's to imagine and lie to ourselves that we are the source and that we deserve it. Friends, how many times have you had the thought cross your head, I deserve And how many times has that finished with death and hell and separation from God? Not very often, probably, because, man, we think we deserve so much, if I do say so myself, right? But what we see in verse 20 is to lift ourselves up is to ignore that which will lead to a hardness of heart and prideful activity. To lift ourselves up is to ignore that which will lead to a hardness of heart and prideful activity. At the core of every sin is pride, where we declare ourselves judge of good and evil, justifier of ourselves, and ultimately ruler over ourselves and others. We, in essence, remove God from the picture as the benevolent provider. And Belshazzar had raised himself above God and blinded himself to the fact 
If we are not careful, we often do the same, primarily when we justify ourselves and our attitudes while judging others. Friends, even when we have an accomplishment, even when we have something that we should be quote-unquote proud of, recognize where it comes from. Whether it be your intelligence or your good looks or your big house or your good job or the money you bring in or the fact that you are liked by many people, that is a gift from God. It has nothing to do with you. Even your hardest work is chump change. It sprinkles on top of the fact that God is the provider. But then we see also in verse 20 that even though Nebuchadnezzar had lifted himself up, in love, God brought him low in humiliation so that he might repent. And we can say the same, things for us, the same thing for us. In love, God will bring us low in humiliation so that we might repent. The humbling takes place so that we might know, as it says here, that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. As we're going to see very pointedly in chapter 7, this is a clear allusion to the Messiah that God the Father has set over his kingdom, Jesus the Christ, that God sets over him the lowliest of men. Who was the lowliest of men? Sunday school answer. Jesus was the lowliest of men. God sets over his kingdom the lowliest of men. This is speaking of Jesus the Christ. When our lives are out of order and we have placed ourselves as our own provider, justifier, and authority, God loves us enough to humble us, bring us to our knees, and break us so that we will properly reorder ourselves to the reality that Jesus is our provider, justifier, and king. And then in verse 22, we see that if we recognize this process in the humbling of others, what is sensible is to humble ourselves and repent. He says there in verse 22, And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. If we recognize this process in the humbling of others like Nebuchadnezzar, what is sensible is to humble ourselves and repent. In not doing so, we prove that we believe that we are special. We're better than Nebuchadnezzar and better than everyone else or anyone else that's ever been humbled, which is the height of arrogance. And this is the answer, friends, to so many questions I've had posed to me over the years about why we do what we do as Christians. We do what we do as Christians to humble ourselves. Why do we tithe? Because we realize that our financial and material wealth has been given to us as a gift from God. It is not ours, but his. He merely gives it to us to steward for a time. And out of his amazing grace, he gives us the majority to live on and enjoy his creation. But we tithe and give offering to remind ourselves that he is the source and the authority of all that exists. Friends, if your heart is broken every time you have to give up that check or press that button for an online payment, that's the point. It is to break us of our arrogance. Why do we volunteer and serve? Because we realize that our time is not our own. In him, we live and move and have our being. We use our time and our talents to serve others because we are reminding ourselves that our purpose is to love him and love others made in his image. 
to believe that our time is our own or that we alone out of everyone in this church deserve to not have to serve is to remove God from the picture and lift ourselves up as special privileged people. Why do we covenant together as members and fellowship in small groups? Because we need to remind our selfish selves that in his death and resurrection, God not only saved us, but he formed a new humanity, a new family, and a new kingdom in which we are brothers and sisters submitting to one another in an effort to submit to him. Why do we regularly gather on the Lord's day? Why not just sleep in? Well, we do so to remind ourselves that God orders our priorities. He sets our mission, so we begin our week with praise of him. He is worthy to carve out one day in seven to worship him and collectively declare our submission to him as a people. Why do we pray before meals? That's just religion and and that's legalism. Well, friends, we do it because who provided the meal? Fred Meyer, my wife, my husband. No, God did. If he cuts off the rain from heaven, you'll be amazed at how quickly Fred Meyer or Roths can no longer provide for you. Just take a look at the last year when we got a little inkling of what it is to not be the provider. We do these things because we need to constantly remind ourselves that our life is not our own. We believe this as part of the gospel truth. When Jesus died on the cross, he ransomed us from sin and death and purchased us off the slave block of our own sin with his blood. This is 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple to the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The biggest lie the enemy has sown amongst us is that our lives are our own, and God is here to serve us. Brothers and sisters, could anything be more blasphemous? When you look at your life, is your life primarily about your goals, your accomplishments, your will, and your self-care and promotion? Or is it about God's will, God's mission, and what he declares to be a life well spent in sacrifice? Belshazzar, like us, had more than enough access to these truths through the story of his predecessor. We each have more than enough access to these truths through God's word. And so I want to repeat this week the same question I gave you the last two weeks. Where is the Lord currently asking you to humble yourself? Where are you kicking against the goads, so to speak, and denying the need to lay down your pride? Where have you hardened your heart against God or someone else so that God is asking you to surrender instead? Where is the Lord asking you to humble yourself? This is not just another application question, friends. This is core to our walk as believers. And I fear as your pastor that those of us in this congregation that need to ask the question the most are the first to dismiss it as a question for someone else. And I say this in love for you all because the word is clear to us that if refused, God's call to humility will end in deserved destruction. If refused, God's call to humility will end in deserved destruction. 
Friends, it's not that little sins can't be forgiven. Well, Hans, what, what if I don't pray before my meals? Is that a bad thing? You know, what if I forgot once or twice? Well, I don't think God is that upset about once or twice. But if you just regularly forget that God is your provider or take any of the other things we've talked about, it's not that those things are unforgivable and that those things have made you lose your salvation. It's that those things are symptoms of a much worse issue. When my wife first found out she had cancer, it started with an itch that kind of moved around her body. No rash, what's that? No big deal. But then when we found out she had Hodgkin's disease, we realized that the itch was a symptom of a much larger issue. When we find pride in ourselves and have lifted ourselves up in even one small way, it is a step on the journey and road to ultimate pride that leads to ultimate destruction. So let's take a look here, and let's finish by looking at verses 24 through 31 and see that if refused, God's call to humility will end in deserved destruction. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Upharsin. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now you might pause for a second and think, wait a minute. Hans, I thought you said that he refused it all. He did. But here he's taking it. Why? We don't know for sure. But in my mind's eye, and this is total eisegesis, I'm totally reading into the word, but in my mind's eye, I see Daniel getting clothed with all these things and thinking to himself, go ahead, you're going to die in about five minutes. Go ahead, your kingdom's going to be taken from you in about five minutes. It's almost that he does it with an air of sarcasm. Now, I don't know that for sure, but it's interesting that he switches the mode here and takes it. Now, verse 30, it says, That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. The God who had shown his authority at the Tower of Babel in the center of this very city by confusing their language in Genesis 11, now again confuses them as a show of his authority at the end of their empire's reign. To translate, it will take one in whom his spirit resides. Now, these three words can be translated, numbered, weighed, and divided. And another way to think of them is in the words appointed, evaluated, and punished. Belshazzar had been appointed as king, evaluated, and found wanting, and was therefore punished. God was using the idea of scales and weights to illustrate his judgment. And Belshazzar had been judged deficient. In the words of the idioms that this story generated, the handwriting was on the wall. Belshazzar's days and those of his kingdom were numbered. Because Belshazzar had been blinded and intoxicated with his own self-worship and idolatry, he was, in essence, daring God to humble him. Friends, is that ever a good idea? It is not. And that evening, humble him, God did. On what we would date as October 12, 539 B.C., 
The powerful Persian army was able to divert the Euphrates into a marsh just enough that they could wade in the water just under the walls of Babylon and walk into the city unimpeded. Historians tell us that Belshazzar was such a terrible ruler and Nabonidus was so absent that the people welcomed the conquering army with joy and open arms. No one seemed to care that Belshazzar was deposed because his own pride had blinded him to being a failure as a king. And when the armies came into the castle, they found Belshazzar with a dagger to his throat about to commit suicide. They stopped him so that they could kill him themselves. And for the Israelite exiles and for you and I, we in a way can find some uh, care and peace in this because what it shows is that overarching theme of Daniel that even when it doesn't look like it, God is indeed in control, even of evil leaders. Friends, this is why when you see a leader be put in power, whatever that leader is in whatever party, and you think, oh no, we've got an evil leader that's going to lead us astray. True. God is still in control. God is still sovereign, and he will deal with it. He will give them their deserved destruction. But for an even more immediate application, we must realize that in the balances of God's righteousness and justice, we all not just the rulers, have been numbered, weighed, and found wanting. To humble ourselves is to recognize and admit this truth and the need we have for a true king who can justify us and balance the scales so that we might be made right before a holy God. The beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the good news is the bad news that we have all been weighed and been found wanting. The immediate reality of Jesus' death on the cross of Calvary is that truth. We were created to be God's perfect reflection, and we failed, and we still fail daily to reflect him. We need a Savior to help us. And this humbling and humiliating truth then requires repentance, not as just a one-time event where we cry out to God in our need for salvation. It is definitely that. But it's also moment by moment, day by day, as we notice a lifted spirit, a hardened heart, and prideful actions in ourselves. In those moments, we need to bow in humble submission to God, to his word, and to his people. On either side of the story of Belshazzar, we see the leaders that show humility toward God. In chapter 4, we saw Nebuchadnezzar with his doxology to God. In chapter 6, we'll see the Persian leader, the Persian king, give praise to Yahweh. But here in between, Belshazzar is contrasted as one deserving of destruction because he refused humility. The sole difference between these three men is a willingness to repent. As we heard in our first reading, pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And God will prove true in this. But like Belshazzar, he also gives us the opportunity to repent, to humble ourselves. Dear friends, all of us, every one of us in this room, myself included, suffer from the affliction of pride. From a hardness of heart, from a lifted spirit, from a desire to usurp the very throne of God. And that is why we need Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the cross to accept the penalty for our sin on our behalf. But the difference between one for whom the cross is effective 
and one for whom it is not is seen in repentance. God has already done the work. There is no work we can do to earn it. But accepting it is part of the deal. Nebuchadnezzar repented. Belshazzar did not. And this is not unlike King Saul and David. I want to encourage you this week to do some work. I want you to go this week and compare 1 Samuel 13 through 15 and 2 Samuel 12. And I want you to compare in 1 Samuel 13 through 15 the story of Saul being confronted with his disobedience with David after the sin with Bathsheba being confronted about his disobedience. What you will find is that Saul over and over again blame shifts, stonewalls, justifies, points to everybody else but himself. And it isn't until he is told the kingdom is taken from him that he actually repents, but it's too late at that point. But when David is confronted, I want you to look at what he says. This is 2 Samuel 12, 13. Notice the simplicity of his statement. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Friends, notice how quickly the compassionate grace and mercy and love of God flows in when simple repentance is present. Simple humility, simple surrender. At the cross, Jesus did all the work necessary to save us from eternal destruction. To accept that free gift of grace requires us to repent, profess our sin, and turn with thankful hearts to God's grace. And if you wonder what that looks like, well, let's finish this morning by reminding ourselves of David's prayer of repentance in Psalm 51. Would you turn there with me? Go to Psalm 51 and we'll end there. Psalm 51. I recognize that I forgot to show you what the writing looked like. There's what it most likely looked like. Now you can see why they were confused. <laughs> but let's all turn to Psalm 51. Here's the prayer of David's heart of repentance. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me.
Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Friends, this week, as application, in addition to reading those chapters and comparing Saul and David, I beg of you to read this, reflect on it, and pray through it. And in so doing, I beg of you to ask the question, does this describe my heart? In my relationships, in any conflicts I'm in, in any situation with my boss or my coworkers or my friends or my roommates or my children or my spouse, am I showing that I believe that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, do I believe that I need his spirit to restore in me the joy of salvation? And friends, if not, if you're honest with yourself and you read through this and you say, this is not my heart, then let's promise one another that we will get on our knees and pray through this and beg the Lord to do a work in this church of humility so that we can proclaim the gospel with our very lives. I want you to join me in asking the question of whether or not our own hearts are repentant and humble. And let's all pray together that God would give us humble hearts that recognize the truth of our own sinfulness and the truth of his goodness, mercy, and grace. Amen? Amen.